welcome to episode 263 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I mean, I'm good. This is like our typical... Well, actually, we used to have a lot of kind of the salutation banter that came we along did. with the opening of the podcast. So we let's revisit that. You're good? Yeah, I'm good. I'm having a good day. I'm good. Yeah. I'm having a good day. I feel like we're in the beginning of like a British TV show. Are you good? <laughs> Are you having a good day? <laughs> the only British, British accent drama. I can do is Tiny Tim, so... <laughs> oh my gosh. Or maybe it's I Oliver. Like... May I have some more gruel, please? May I have some more? <laughs> Cut to our lovely English brothers and sisters who are like, how dare you? <laughs> how dare They're you? They're like, Oliver well, on Twist this episode, is a national treasure. Is he? No, I don't think so. Pretty sure that, that would, I'm pretty sure not. I want to say, here's the thing that it's already been derailed. So everybody get ready. This podcast has already <laughs> been derailed. Here's the thing I feel like American people focus on with Oliver Twist. It's just the porridge scene. It's just, can I have more porridge? Yeah. That's the thing. Can you say anything else about that musical or that story? I can't. No, I, I, I'm I pretty sure that in my head, it's actually the plot of Annie, but it's just a little British kid. <laughs> I think that's actually what I think the movie, I'm sure that it's not, but I think that's what I think the movie is like. It's the same thing. Like, it's a hard knock life, but British. Beautiful. See, here's the thing. I know that we should be really embracing what Dickens was trying to emphasize about children in deplorable conditions of working in a capitalist society. All I hear is, can I have more porridge? Yeah. And also, it's a hard knock life. That's <laughs> <laughs> not It's not in them. That's a different, different musical with a different plot, but... I like now I can't th- stop thinking of anything else. I can't stop thinking of anything besides Oliver Twist also being just the plot of Annie. I have a confession, which I have only shared with my wife. It is something that has nothing to do with the topic at hand, which is going to be eventually basic doctrine involving the Trinity, <laughs> which is super great. But what I'm about to say right now has nothing to do with that. So in the area in which I live, musicals are really a big deal for high schools. This is the thing. This, they spend a lot of money, a lot of time. They're uh, amazing. It's not just high school musical, which I think is actually like a show, and that's not what I'm talking about, but they actually have the middle schools do their own musicals, and people go to them, even if they don't know anybody. This seems incredible to me, but like I guess like the thing to do is like, hey, you want to have a date night? Know what we should do? Let's go see a middle school musical. Apparently, that's a thing because they're, they're so important. They're so good in this area. Anyway, one time my wife and I went to... A middle school musical. It was Annie. Nice. And I was down with it for the most part. It was really good representation. There was it was actually really wonderful. You could tell the, the students, the children, put a lot of effort into it. There was one point where I was like, okay, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. And that was Annie has a dog. And so there was a child in the dog costume crawling around for most of the musical. At one point, the dog stood up and started to sing. And no. I was like, I can't, I no. can't do this anymore. No, no, no. <laughs> The, uh, this is the first time I'm ever disclosing this in public. I was in the musical Annie in the third Get grade. Out. We did it in my reading class, and I played the guy who takes the laundry away who had a crush on the the uh, orphanage lady. Oh, what is her name? I have People no idea. People are screaming her name right now. I have now. no idea. I would say I'd look ah. it up, but I've got the plot to Oliver Twist on Wikipedia on my computer. 
because I was trying to figure out what that movie's about. <laughs> I don't remember the guy's name. The only oh, the only character besides Annie in the movie that I remember is Daddy Warbucks, but I know that's not either of the people that I'm thinking of. Is it Lanigan? Mr. Cro- Mr. Cooper is the, or maybe it's Cooper. I don't remember. <laughs> I remember we joked about calling him Mr. Crapper, so it's either Cooper <laughs> or something like that. Was not was yeah. Uh, listen loved ones this is what you get with tony and i on the reform brotherhood it's like unadulterated pure non-edited real conversation like this is the conversation you have over lunch we're not looking things up we're not gonna go back and edit this to make us sound like we actually know what we're talking about when it comes to annie <laughs> or oliver it's true this is just what we have for way of knowledge so luckily this is not what the episode is about so since this isn't our topic at hand let's move quickly somewhat quickly, to affirmations and denials. I'm going to go back to you with a little bit of dealer's choice. Which would you like to start with on this episode? Uh, why don't we start? Why don't you start with an affirmation? Oh, dang. Okay. So I'm going to go with a website, which is actually a website that sells things that are of a reform nature. So I think everybody is, is maybe familiar with, or for the most part familiar with Mission Aware. It's a fantastic organization. I've actually recently come across other companies that sell like reformed oriented clothing or gear. And so I'm affirming with sdgclothing.com, sdgclothing.com, so dayglorioclothing.com. And the reason why is because I think they kind of have like a fun little edge to them. So they've got like a lot of fun t-shirts and mugs. By the way, we're not sponsored by them. I wish that we were. We had some kind of partnership. If anybody knows, reach out to us, info at reformbrotherhood.com. But here's the thing. I love that it's like kind of, it's like, this is like the stuff you wear where it's like semi-reform trolling. So like some of the stuff is like, you know, they have like reform Presby and Dutch reform t-shirt. Like that's just super awesome. I just love that stuff. But I love that they have like this t-shirt and a mug. It's a lithograph like old school of like the David and Goliath scene. And it has like above Goliath has, says Goliath. And then above David, it says, not you, <laughs> which, which I see like that stuff is just funny. They also, and see, this is brilliant. Cause you and I have joked about this. They have a t-shirt or a mug that says, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Nice. So like these, I feel like are our people. So if you're looking for yes. maybe like gifts as holidays or birthdays arise, like sdgclothing.com seems like a super fun site. So I don't know nice. anything about this site. I just know that I really love their stuff. Nice. I don't have anything to add to that. It's a cool site. They got cool stuff. You should, uh, I'd say tell them that we sent you, but there's probably not anywhere to do that. <laughs> So if you purchase from them, <laughs> just say, tell someone that Jesse and Tony sent you, like your, like they, your they have, postman um, or like the person who delivers the package. Yeah. Just be like, just Hey, listen. Tony and Jesse sent me and he'll be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Please it's stay away from me. It's always safe to drop our names. Like go into the doctor, your mechanic, just I know. say Tony and Jesse sent You me. never it's know. You might eventually. get a discount somewhere. That's, that's factually tra- correct. Like they have a t-shirt with a, like a Luther head and it says, I've got 90, 95 problems, but Romans eight, one. Brilliant. Nice. That's uh, a high see, quality. That's a high exactly. quality play on words. I don't, it's not quite a pun, but it's a, that's a high quality play on words. Yes. That's what I'm saying. So I, I find this like super fun. By the way, I have a t-shirt that somebody got me as a gift actually from mission aware. And it's like the Calvinist t-shirt it says Calvinist. And it's got like the five solos. I definitely, I I cannot lie to anybody. I definitely will often put that on when I'm going to a place where I think I can trigger some people. (laughs) So I I think there's something lovely about this kind of stuff. It's fun to play with theology in the sense that we know that we have different convictions. So bringing those out, being proud of those convictions, spurring some dialogue. 
in a fun way, I think is absolutely wonderful. This is like intramural stuff here. So like, let's embrace that and get after it. So if somebody knows anything about sdgclothing.com and can hook us up with like sponsorship, yeah, we grab, or they want to send me shirts, I would gladly wear them all. They're super hilarious. Nice, nice. How about you? What are you affirming today? Well, so I'm affirming, um, I'm affirming my mother-in-law, which is your mother. That is my period. mom. Um, I haven't announced this on the show, but it's been all over social media. So oh I don't know. man, here we go. I don't know if it's uh, if it's something that's going to surprise a lot of people, but my wife and I are expecting a baby boy who uh, uh, is going to join us in March. And my mother-in-law and my father-in-law, but this particularly is, is about my mother-in-law, who listens to the show. She usually is like four or five weeks behind, but if you're hearing this, we love you. We appreciate you. Uh, <laughs> right she on. did all of this work helping us get are home ready for a baby. We don't know what we're doing. This is our first child. And she put together the most amazing uh, nursery theme in the world. So I'm actually going to, I normally don't do this, but I'm actually going to take some pictures and put them up on the show notes for this episode. Oh, so wow. if you do not normally go to the episode page to look at this, please do. Because the nursery she put together is like, I, I walked in there. She It's funny. It's awesome. she's She is very much into the reveal. So like when we do mid midwinter, no reason gifts, like we all have to wait uh, like behind a closed door because all of the, all of the mid reason, midwinter, no reason gifts are arranged around the mid midwinter, no reason tree. And we have to wait and come in so everybody can see all of the presents arranged uh, the way that she's arranged them. So we come in and it's like this big reveal and... Uh, it was like trading spaces, like that old TV show where like the people come in and like they're overwhelmed with how amazing this space looks. So she has just been such a huge benefit to us and such a huge help, just helping us get ready mentally for this baby to come, helping us get ready physically in terms of the the way that the the house is set up, helping us know what to buy. So she's, I mean, there's so many other reasons why I should be thankful uh, that I've been engrafted into this family, but uh, she really is amazing and this uh this nursery is is just one example of it so i'm actually going to put up pictures please 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 go look at them because this nursery is amazing uh i can't even describe it it's it's really she really could make a living as an interior decorator uh if she wanted to uh and it was it was just put together because she loves us and she loves this baby that has not yet arrived and she loves the lord and she does this kind of thing out of the generosity of her heart so i'm affirming my mother-in-law she's awesome i love her and she's great. Right on. Of course, I can get behind that. My mother is awesome, exceptional, far above average. And I'm wanting to rise up every day and call her blessed because yes. she's a fantastic woman. And congratulations to you, good Thank brother, you. on expanding your family. Listen, you know how much I love you and my sister. The world needs more people like you all. And I'm glad you're doing something about that. Yes. So yeah. it's great that the family is expanding and you know, totally affirm the middle name of this child. Obviously it's yes. going to be a child of, it's going to have epic progeny. <laughs> yeah. So we are naming the child August Jesse. And uh, obviously the, the middle name is chosen after my brother-in-law and co-host. And the first name is just a name that we like. It's a little bit of a head nod to Augustine, but oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're excited. Uh, everyone's excited. So yeah. So just uh, take a look at the pictures and yeah, share them around because of how awesome they are. I don't know what else to say about that. So let's, let's great. move on to your, well, at some point 
obviously this is going to be an interview, right? We're going to have August on the podcast. Yeah. I mean, we're, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have one of those like strap things. He's going to have to like <laughs> sit right in front of me while I'm recording. So everybody can envision that while you listen to us at some point that's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, like I'm already reading like catechism questions to him through like the skin of your <laughs> sister's womb. I love it. Yeah. I love it. That's fantastic. Yeah. So in terms of denials, I'm just going back to this well, which is a well that never runs dry. It's not even that deep. In other words, like we can just throw the bucket right into it and pull up this glorious water. And I guess at the end, the, the denial is denying against Arminianism, but it's in like a different, slightly different form. And that is, I was thinking this week, I was studying, pondering, meditating, ruminating on this idea that... What does it mean to speak of and think of, and this this ties into our topic, what does it mean to speak of the ministry of Christ right now? That is, it's not like chilling, it's not like it's just slouched sitting next to the Father, but this idea of both intermediation, he's interceding for us, but also advocating for us. And those are two different and separate things. It just got me thinking, listen, all of the Christian life is acquired and then sustained by Jesus Christ. Like, there's nothing that I'm doing here. Like, I I can't keep myself in this lane whatsoever. Like, I'm all over the lane. I'm outside of the lane. And so, like, this ministry of Christ is a ministry that keeps me all together. And I mean that, like, very literally. Yeah. And so, it just made me think about, like, any time we try to, like, superimpose that in some way, something that we're doing has, like, preceded the work of Christ or stands over the work of Christ or keeps us outside and above and beyond the work of Christ is the minute that we fall into, like, really grievous error, even if we do so unwittingly. So even Paul speaking about working out your salvation, like, how can we even work out our salvation? Who does salvation come from? Like, even that, in, in its essence, we have this preceding loveliness of the graciousness and mercy and the work and the perfection of Jesus Christ. And it comes with us all the days of our life. So like, I have a feeling I'm going to get to heaven. I'm going to stand in glory with God, the father, God, the son, and the Holy spirit, all present. And in some ways I'm going to have this new realization that all along the way, this is not, this is not like the footprints poem, but like all, all <laughs> along the way, I'm going to realize that really it was Jesus who carried me. Yeah. That even on like my best day when I thought was closest to God, I was in the deepest relationship with him. I'm going to find out that Jesus could say, actually, like he's going to actually me. He's going to be like, actually, <laughs> it was because I was interceding for you. Actually, it was because I was advocating for you because you are my child. And yeah. I think like that is the loveliness of the gospel in its entirety. So... I don't know. Like you tell me, where does that denial fall? I think it's in Armenian territory, generally speaking, but it's with like a particular bent this time. Yeah. Yeah. To be fair to our Armenian brothers and sisters, they would typically not give themselves any credit. uh, Even though I think that theologically they unwittingly do give themselves like most of the credit. Uh, I don't think any of them think they're giving themselves the credit. They're not trying to, but I think you're right. Like we, we underestimate how much, you know, I was having a conversation with someone online this week about sanctification and how monergistic sanctification really is central to the gospel, right? It really is central that not only does does Christ save us from the penalty of our sin in justification, but he actually saves us from the power of this of our sin yes. in sanctification, that because he is making us new from the inside out as well as justifying us from the outside in like that really is the you know calvin talks about as like the duplex gratia the double grace of of salvation 
and the, any idea that like we do that in any sense that that's something we do contributes to that or brings it about like I'll deny that all day long and, and like Amen. multiple times on the Lord's day as, as many times as I can stomach it and as many opportunities as I have. So yeah, I think that's great. I think it probably is like a denial of Arminianism specifically like in, in theological terms, but even like, even like uh, Lutherans, right. They like justification is by faith. Uh, like you're saved through ta- like through baptism unless you resist it. Like that's right. like ev- God is calling everyone unless you resist it. So like there still is that element on your part. You have to do or not do something. I think like pretty much every system except like good genuine reform theology embraces some sort of synergism somewhere along the line. Yes, exactly. But I think like that denial of of synergism in any real form in terms of our salvation itself, including sanctification, including justification, I think that that's, that's where you're getting at. And I, I'm all on board with that. I love that. I mean, th- we're talking about like a radical type of grace, like a truly radical and revolutionary type of grace, because I've said this podcast before, like my greatest fear is that either now or in old age, I'm going to lose like my mind, like all yeah. my sensibilities, all my faculties. And to think like, because that happened, that somehow I'd fall out of grace is ridiculous because yeah. it is Jesus who saves us. It's Jesus who holds us. It's Jesus who affirms us and keeps us before the father. And if that is true, if we would say, if we'd posit that that can be true when we lose our minds, why is it not true now when we have yeah. all of our faculties about us, all right. of our wits are present. And so I think like we're drawn to say like, well, what we get into is like these weird instances where like, well, God makes an exception there. makes an exception for the unborn child or the faithful believer who has dementia. Like loved ones, like the underpinning, the root of that is that Jesus does all the work. He did it then and he does it now to keep us on a Tuesday morning in like the faith, so to speak. So I just was like overwhelmed by that again. And I was like, man, any kind of place unwittingly or not, that leads us down a path that says like, I have to perform, I have to pass the test. I have to do this thing or that. I have this stress upon me. I have a mantle to carry for my salvation is the very thing which like exhausts us, sets us down, puts us into the depths of hell really. And I just want to liberate everybody, including myself and say like, man, what would Jesus do? Everything. And he already did it. And so it's just wonderful to live in a world where it's like, there's lots of things we can worry about, like whether your car is going to start tomorrow, whether you're going to have enough money, what your health is going to be like in the future. But the, you know, the one thing you don't have to worry about is the fact that God has saved you and reconciled yeah. him to yourself. Like, man, yeah. I don't know. I have nothing else to say, like, except you know what I want to run through right now. It's just you a want wonderful to run through thing. a wall. I mean, that'll preach, man. <laughs> like, like that'll preach. It's that, it, I mean, I it better preach because that's the gospel. So. Yeah. Good work. Yeah. I love it. All right. So it's your turn, of course. Denial time. So I'm denying, uh, let me, let me try to be somewhat gentle. There are a lot of people, you know, I made like a jokey reference to midwinter, no reason, right? We're getting to that time of year where people are about to start like excommunicating people out of the faith because they put up a Christmas tree. Uh, like, don't do that. But that that's not what I'm denying. I'm don't denying inconsistency in terms of the regulative principle. So you're about to see from certain quarters of the reform world, you're about, about to start seeing articles come out about why you shouldn't celebrate Christmas, why you shouldn't have a Christmas tree, why you shouldn't sing certain hymns at this time of year, right? I've heard people say it's okay to sing Silent Night as long as you don't sing it around December 25th. <laughs> I also know for a fact that some of the people who've said that 
probably saying, and we're recording on October 31st right now on Reformation Sunday, probably saying a mighty fortress is our God this morning, right? So Reformation Day is like one of those days that even like the most hardcore regulative principle people, they also, they they go crazy over it. They love it. They love Reformation Sunday. And they'll they'll have their Reformation Sunday hymn of A Mighty Fortress is Our God. But so help me, if you sing Oh Holy Night on December 26th <laughs> this year, you are as good as a tax collector as a Gentile. So I'm just I'm just denying that inconsistency, right? Fair enough. We've been pretty clear about what we think about man-made holy days, Christmas probably being the chief of those man-made holy days. But we've also been pretty clear that like it's okay to celebrate the incarnation in December. That's just fine. Right on. Like there's a there's a way you can do it. There's a way that doesn't make it obligatory to to make it like a de facto holy day. Um and if a pastor wants to preach out of the beginning of Luke or the beginning of Matthew, uh, or they want to, you know, they want to make sure that we sing hymns that have to do with the incarnation around December 26th this year, that's totally fine. What I'm denying is the people that would say that's not totally fine, but didn't throw a fit when someone pulled up a mighty fortress is our God at church this morning. Right. So we have to be consistent in this either we we have to disconnect hymns from the traditional context that they come in. So we can't sing resurrection resurrection hymns in the spring. We can't sing incarnation hymns in the winter, uh, or uh, or we can't sing a mighty fortress is our God at the end of October. Right? We have right. to either do that, or we have to acknowledge that it's okay to have a sort of rhythm of the doctrines that we focus on that, that connects to certain parts of the year, including the songs we sing in worship. So like I said, I know for a fact that there are some churches that will avoid certain uh, Christmas type hymns in the winter that had no qualms about singing a mighty fortress is our God right. and preaching a sermon that not only has some specific uh, context in terms of the type of doctrine emphasized, right? You probably preached on faith alone or scripture alone this morning and talked about the Reformation and sang a mighty fortress this morning. Uh, I don't want to hear you if you did that. I don't. I really don't want to hear you talk about how someone can't preach about the incarnation on December 26th this year. That's just, that's that's just me. I think that's totally fine because yeah. I think what you're after is this idea of like our primary way, which we understand like the Lord's day in particular should be looking at it through the save of what the scriptures teach us about that day and just make that our priority. And I'm with you. Like we should be able to just preach and speak about and worship the Trinity, like at any given point in time. And if right. so happens that we want to place a particular emphasis on a day, that like our culture is also looking to that thing or is trying to emphasize that thing. That's also fine. I think it's just a matter of like, listen, loved ones, like, like the Christmas tree is like a cultural thing. Like love right. it, celebrate it, enjoy it for what it is. Don't conflate it though with anything else but that. And right. when you, I think separate those things and like pull them apart, then you can be like, yeah, I can enjoy this thing. And it's totally fine. Yep. So I, I like, let's let the Lord's day be the Lord's day and let's everything else be everything else. So in yep. so much as it does not preclude us from properly worshiping God, it does not infringe upon the regulative principle. Then this is like any number of things we talked about that we ought to enjoy with the appropriate amount of moderation yeah. in the time that we're able to not to mention the fact that like for most evangelicals, Christmas, Easter, like this is our liturgical calendar, right? Like absent an actual one that we're following and tracking with, we end up in these patterns and those right. patterns are okay. 
as long as we understand and emphasize what they are, which is just recollections to bring us back to right. certain points. Yep. But to, you know, like, I think like you said before, one of the things I appreciate is I'm going to try to like quote you from something I think that you said before, which was like, every good sermon should tell you how you ought to be saved, right? So like, yep. we should always be hearing the gospel every time, all the time, anytime there is any kind of preaching done. So like that means though, that like when it comes to like this, you know, the December time of year, you might be hearing about the incarnation again, but nobody should be like, how dare you right. talk about the son of God becoming flesh and tabernacling among us because the culture is, this is like, again, that weird, like reverse way in which we say like, well, because the culture is emphasizing this, we're not going to have anything to do with it right now. When like, yeah. we should always be about that thing. And in, in many ways, we're just saying like, we should always be about this thing. And so what we feel as an emphasis in December should be the emphasis in March and in April and in July and any of the other 12 months. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, you got me fired up on that. That's all I got though. So now we have to talk yeah, about now, something now different. Now I'm all fired up. That's all right. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine to be fired up. Let's be so fired up about the Trinity though. Yes. Let's be fired up about the Trinity, which I appreciate that, you know, again, we're kind of going through this like never ending series, which we've called it. By the way, there is a movie, I think called the never ending story, right? There's like there a weird is. flying dog. It's got like a movie. really traumatic scene about a horse, I think. Yes. Is that I the never ending story or is that something Actually, else? Actually, it might not be. And that I'm might be something else. I've just, <laughs> I've come in so hot in my I don't know. I, I think there's, a, I think the horse scene where he's stuck in the swamp, I think that's never ending story. It's terrifying. That that dragon dog thing freaks me out too. Yes. Yeah, I think you're okay, correct. Again, people are like yelling in their cars or like as it's they're fine. cleaning their it's fine. Yeah. Like their bathrooms as we're listening to this. But the reason why this is somewhat never ending, of course, is because like all good theology, all good reform reforming, like we spoke about Reformation Day, is this process of always being in that posture, that being attentive and willing to embrace and lean into what God teaches us, both as we grow the time in which we live, but also we know their eternal truths. And that's right. one of the ones that we're kind of coming and circling back around to today. And that is, what should we understand about the Holy Trinity? And it's common to hear people, I think, in our day and age claim that like Christians, Jews, Muslims, that we all worship in some way like the same God. Like the differences are superficial, but what right. we have in common is like this really strong rootedness. Of course, that's not true. Yeah. So unlike those who worship like Allah or those Jews who claim to worship the God of Abraham, Christians worship the true living God who reveals himself in three persons as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we spent a lot of time, I think, going over the biblical data to that effect in the last episode. And yes. so now we want to get over, after just saying like, listen, the Bible clearly states this. For me, the question that we should always be asking is like, well, what are the primary doctrinal rooted underpinning statements of the Holy Trinity? In other words, like what are the essential qualifications, characteristics of the Trinity that make Christians Christians? Because I would submit to you that this has got to be one of the, if not the distinctive theological position of Christians. That yeah. is that God is represented in the Holy Trinity. So what yeah. do we do with that? Yeah, well, what we do with that, before anybody sends an email thinking that Jesse's a modalist, he's represented and he reveals himself as Trinity because he actually is Trinity. And that's that's right. really, really important, right? So we're, we're going to give, this week is going to be all about sort of like 
the basic foundation of Trinitarian theology. And there's really nowhere else to go about the basic foundation of of Trinitarian theology except to the Nicene Creed. So I am going to read the Nicene Creed, which is not the creed that came out of the Council of Nicaea, but the creed that was the expansion of that creed that came out of the Council of Constantinople in 381. Uh, and, And it reads thus... It says, I believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made." who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So that wraps up our episode, because uh, we can't really improve on that. Yeah, so <clears throat> the reason I read that is because this is this is the faith statement of the Christian church, right? So, so throughout the ages, the church, either universally or regionally, in the case of the Reformed creeds and confessions, or in the case of sort of a more modern phenomena, is individual churches having like a, a particular faith statement for like, the first Presbyterian, well, not Presbyterian, but like the first Baptist church of like Waco, Texas has their own faith statement. I don't know if there's a first Baptist church in Waco, Texas. That's just an example. But all of those faith statements are derivative of or supplementary to the Nicene Creed. So every true, genuine Christian church since the year 381 has confessed and acknowledged sometimes not knowingly, but has confessed right. and acknowledged the faith that is communicated in this summary of scripture. So when we're talking about the Trinity, this is the gold standard. I'm like slamming on my Bible that has it printed in the back. This is the gold standard. So this is where we have to sort of like plant our flag is that the theology presented in the Nicene Creed, not because it has any sort of ecclesiastical authority, although it does have ecclesiastical authority, not because of that, but because it faithfully articulates what the scriptures say, this this creed that I just read is the statement of faith for the entire Christian church. Now, there's a little bit of variety. We're not going to get into it tonight. We might talk about it on a different show, but you know, there's a little bit of variety between the Eastern Church, which doesn't affirm the filioque clause, and the Western Church. That's a pretty nitty-gritty detail that has some pretty right. important, some, you know, some significant implications that we'll talk about on a different episode. But universally across the board, if there's a church that says, I do not confirm, or I do not affirm the faith that is presented in the Nicene Creed, you are not talking about a Christian church. And right. this is really where the doctrine of the Trinity finds its fullest 
clearest articulation in the early church, right? We talked about this last week, that the New Testament is a thoroughly Trinitarian document because it was produced by a thoroughly Trinitarian early church. The apostles were Trinitarians. They were not figuring things out as they went. They were already Trinitarians who were now writing theological documents inspired by the Holy Spirit that were Trinitarian documents. But the church still had to clarify and sort of rarefy and articulate that theology. And it did so really over the next three to four, maybe 500 years that they were really, really parsing this stuff out. But even after, even after 381 in the Council of Constantinople, even after that, the refinements that they made and the, the clarifications that they made were not so significant that the church ever really felt like they had to publish or change anything substantial about the Nicene Creed. And that's a pretty significant thing that for, you know, 1800 years, or I suppose, you know, 1700 years, roughly, we've had this document that has gone more or less unchanged throughout all branches of the Christian church, including the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Church, which we, I would personally think about institutionally as schismatic and um, heretical apostate groups, right? Not that every person in those groups or even every individual congregation within those groups is schismatic and apostate, but institutionally the Roman Catholic Church is a schismatic apostate church that is broken away from the faith once delivered to the saints. So also the, the Eastern Orthodox patriarchs, right? This is the groundwork that we have to lay for this. So that's the doctrine of the Trinity we're talking about, is the Nicene doctrine of the Trinity. Right. There are lots of people right now who don't hold to the doctrine that is taught in the Nicene Creed. I'm looking at you, Wayne Grudem. I'm looking at you, Owen Strahan and Bruce Ware and William Lane Craig. We'll, we'll get into that on a different episode, the specifics of that. We'll have our polemics episode. But that's what we're talking about. And the reason we have to talk about it is because there are those, like the men that I just I just said, who are going to teach something different than that faith that is articulated in the Nicene Creed. This is helpful because I think maybe some may not realize that the Nicene Creed is basically like might we say like the least common denominator of Christianity? Yeah. Like, so those who are pushing against that, we would say unequivocally are non-Christian, not just because it is like it perfectly encapsulates what the full counsel, the wisdom of God teaches as manifest in the scriptures, but also because like, even I would say like, it's because that's super unfair. So here we go. No editing. Even like your nominal Christian would be like, yeah, I can get down with that. So like if you right. move beyond that kind of thing, you're way out in space, like you're way out in left field. And what's interesting is like, there's been somewhat, I would say, in my opinion, like a resurgence in yeah. trying to understand the Nicene Creed because of this very purpose. Like this is like the watershed document. This is a watershed expression. And so we ought to say like, well, am I down with all of this or am I not? Incidentally, one of the things I recently learned when you talked about like, if there was like a first Baptist church of Waco, I learned that there is a town in Arkansas named Flippin. Nice. Like F-L-I-P-P-I-N. And apparently there's a church of God there and it's called... The, the flipping, flipping church, church of God. <laughs> That's amazing. 
that's, <laughs> Which, I, I'm not uh, even mad. That's just impressive. Ex- exactly. That That's what I thought. But like all this in the sense of like our churches should be basically understanding, like we should come to a commitment. It's like understanding, like, do we flip and believe in the Nicene Creed? <laughs> and like, this is like just the bare minimum, which is required. Yeah. And in this day and age when like, there's so many different people want to have different opinions. The question is like, can we hold to this? And so much of I can think what you read is basically an extrapolation and explanation of the Trinity, which is why we're having this conversation. Like right. embedded within that statement is like, I mean, I would say like word for word is probably like has the most brevity and yet the most like distinctive and deep expression of the Trinity. Like I would be hard pressed. There's no way I could write something as succinct as that. And yet as like, beautiful and as like communicative of like an expression of what the Trinity is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let me unpack a little bit, sort of a basic definition of the doctrine of the Trinity. And I'm going to give two, two basic definitions and they're not mutually exclusive. They're kind of mutually informing. So the first definition is that God exists eternally in three persons sharing a common substance, right? So that's the first definition. Well, I'll, I'll explain all of those definitions in a second. The second definition is a little bit closer to what we might distill from the, the Nicene Creed, is that God the Father has a son who is the same in substance, and the right. Father and Son together have a spirit who is also the same in substance. And those three are not three gods, but are one God. So essentially what we have is we have the second was a sort of uh, a pared down version of the Nicene Creed. And the first is kind of a pared down version of a document called the Athanasian Creed. I'm not going to read it. It wasn't written by Athanasius. It was written probably sometime in the 450s by an unknown Latin speaking monk. Uh, But it's a good document and it represents the, the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's important for us to kind of keep these two definitions in mind as we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, because as Calvin said, and he was really quoting, I think it was Basil of Caesarea, we can't ever really land on one aspect or one element of the Trinity without immediately shifting back to the other. So we have a right. tendency, and everybody has a tendency to fa- fall one direction or the other. We either think about the oneness at the expense of the threeness, and we overemphasize the unity of the Trinity, or we think about the threeness at the expense of the oneness, and we overemphasize the plurality of the Trinity. There, right. It's not as though the sweet spot is somewhere in the middle, in terms of like, you just you just find the middle between threeness and oneness, and it's like 1.75-ness or something like that, right? <laughs> There's no like golden mean. We vacillate from back, well back and forth. Is 1.75 even the middle of that? It's not. No, it's one point five, no, right? Okay. Golden mean Whatever. is a thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so we vacillate back and forth, and that's why it's important to understand both what it means to say God is three and what it means to say God is one, because right. if you're doing Trinitarian theology right, you're going to be pulled towards the threeness until all of a sudden you realize you're getting pulled back to the oneness. It's not, it's not this kind of thing where we have to try to hold both intention because we can't, we can't really understand what it means for God to be three and to be one. And we'll, we'll go through that a little bit. So we need to define some basic terms in terms of what we're talking about in the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm going to do my, my best to avoid the word being because the word being can, right. can actually mean 
person or nature, depending on how right. it's used in the sentence. So sometimes that's just more confusing. So I'm going to try to avoid that. But there's two basic concepts we have to understand when we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. There's the concept of person, which you might hear as uh, hypostasis or persona or something like that. Hype is person. And that's the way that God is three. God is three in person. And then there's the concept of, of nature or substance. The Greek is usia. Sometimes you hear essence. This is what most people talk about when they say being, but if they're not careful, they end up slipping into sort of person language when they talk about being. This is the way God is one. He's one in nature. He's one in substance. He's one in essence. So roughly speaking, the substance talks about the what is somethingness. What is this thing that I'm talking about? What is it? The person or the hypostasis or the subsistence is really the that. So there's there's the this. The substance is the this. This is what this is. The person right. is the that. It's pointing at a specific thing and saying that is a human. This is what humanity is. This is what a human is. That thing is a human. If we can keep that in mind, that substance talks about the big picture of what something is, and person talks about the specificity of a particular thing that exists and and then talks about what that thing is, that's the distinction we're talking about. And I know that's a little bit of a different framework than most of the time when you get an articulation of the Trinity, but I think it's important for us to sort of step back from kind of what we normally hear. James White in Forgotten Trinity talks about this as like the substance is the what and the person is the who. Okay, I can kind of get down with that. There's right. some issues with that, but that's kind of the same distinction that I'm making here. But I'm trying to talk more about the the that that thing, thatness is thatness. It's that thing or that um that concept. This is a near demonstrative. It's it's a thing that's sitting right in front of me that I can point point to and touch rather than like that thing over there. It's more vague, it's more hypothetical almost. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, it does. Like, I, I think maybe it's fair to say like this whole conversation, whenever we're speaking about God, but especially about trying to understand the essence of the personhood of God, that we're just on ice, not like right. thin ice, but like everything is slippery because the language is just far really inadequate to like actually describe what we're talking about here. And so we have to use words because that's what we've been given. And so they're always going to fall short. And in many ways, I think what maybe it'd be helpful for people to understand is that we've talked about this before that like we're borrowing or like the early church fathers borrowed a lot from Aristotle when they tried to explain what it was that God was like. Right. And so in so doing, they were using what in their day and age was like the best expression of like personhood or essence or being, but it was problematic because right. we're not talking about like explicitly in theological terms, but more philosophical terms. And yet, of course, what most people understood in that day was like these massive philosophical terms. So everywhere it's like a little bit slippery. And this is the kind of thing to me and this has actually happened to me before where I've been, somebody said to me, don't go into that place because it's slippery. And I've been like, yeah, I'm fine. I'll just be a second. <laughs> and I step out and I'm, and it goes like instantly from standing to being on your yes, back. Yeah. And so like, this is one of those places and like, we shouldn't, I don't want to overly criticize anybody who's trying to process this with us or even ourselves because it's just difficult. Like, it's just really complicated to describe God, of course. So we should acknowledge up front that like, 
we don't have a corner on explaining who God is or what he is like. And yet like God wants us to know him and to invest our right. intellect in trying to understand him as he's revealed himself. So this is all profitable discussion. So like loved ones, it's like a two out of hand was saying like, somebody didn't say it exactly right. We understand we're saying from the beginning, we're not going to say it exactly right, but still worth engaging in this process. Right. So when we talk about these two categories, this, this nature and this essence, it's usually easiest to sort of talk about natures first and to sort of explain right. what that is. So um, most of the early church, uh, the Greek speaking part of the church, if you look at the first four ecumenical councils, they're all written in Greek because the, the Latin speaking part of the church didn't, they just didn't really have all that much involvement in a lot of the early controversies. They were, they usually sent delegates, they signed off on it, but they had other things going on in the, the Roman Latin speaking part of the empire. The Greek speakers took over most of this kind of metaphysics discussion. And so Aristotle, you're right, Aristotle would become a major influence in how the Western church handle right. these things, especially when we get to like the era of Thomas Aquinas. But in the early part of the church, the Greek speakers were much more influenced by Plato. And so when Plato talks about the nature of a thing, he has in mind this, this thing that exists that actually exists more than, than you or I exist, right? There's this scale of being and the more physical and concrete something is, the less actual it is. It's kind of backwards to the way that we think about it. And that's because we think more like, uh, more like Aristotle than we do like Plato, but the more abstract something is, the more real it is, the more being it has. And so there's this, this realm of the ideal forms and the ideal forms are kind of like the, the true existence of a given kind of thing. So, right, Jesse and I are both humans, right? So there are certain features and characteristics that we share. And what makes it possible for us both to say that we're humans is that we participate in this ideal form of humanness or human with a capital right. H, right? So what the church did is they took that concept, which has a lot of good good, you know, good sort of philosophical, theological import behind it. They took that and they said, that's not quite right because we don't want to talk as though there is this sort of like realm of abstract natures that don't have any real in, in person, real in the real world existence. So what they said is that there, there is each person has a what's called a generic nature. And I don't mean generic, like it's not specific, but like, like genre. So there's a genre of human, right. right? And everything in that genre, every actually existing nature, every actual entity that exists shares within that generic nature. So uh, Jesse and I have actual human nature, but our human natures are distinct from each other, but they fit into the same category because of the kinds of properties that we are. Well, what, what happens with God is they look at that and they say, but there's, there can only be one God. And so there's only one instance of the divine nature. There's only one divine nature out there. You know, what is it like 6.7 billion people on the earth? The last time I looked at Google for the population, 6.7 billion instances, unique, distinct human natures that are all right. of the same category. There's only one God. There's only one nature that is God. Right. So that's what we're talking about nature. We're talking about the actually existing concrete nature that really exists. That is God. And that that nature has certain properties. We've already talked about a number of them. Remember when we were going through um, 
theology proper. I said we're kind of talking in theoreticals about like what it is to be God. That's what we're talking about. The divine nature is simple. It's not composed of parts. It's infinite. So that includes it. the fact that it's omnipresent. It's it's personal. So it in, involves knowledge and omniscience and wisdom right. and, and righteousness. There's all these attributes that the divine nature is. It's not right to say it has. The divine nature is. Right. Right. Especially when we're talking about the divine nature, that isness. I mean, that's what the word usia means. When we talk about the Greek term for this, it's usia. It's literally, it's isness. It's the participle form of the verb for existence. It's isness is that it's simple, that it's righteous, that it's infinite, that it's unchangeable. All of those things are what it is to be God. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the divine nature. And so it's important for us to get out of this sort of, we have to kind of get into the world of Plato and then realize the parts of it that we need to step out of it. So this right. idea that there is there is this continuity between different kinds of entities, and that continuity is what we call a nature, right? We could talk about the the nature of a chair, right? Well, well, different chairs have different properties. There's still there's still something that makes them all the same, and th- this is notoriously difficult to just define exactly what it is, right? But whatever it is that makes all chairs the same, that makes us so we can recognize them as chair as a chair, that's the isness. That's the nature of a chair. And and then each individual chair is sort of a deposit or a supposit of that chair nature in reality. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the divine nature. And even though it's like difficult, maybe to process that it's something worth again, spending some time and like maybe resting in or leaning into this idea that God is, I, I think so much of like spirituality, especially these days is wrapped up in this sensibility, this like right. ephemeral nature of what it means to be involved in spiritual things. And so we recognize that there is a world that is unseen and that world that is, is actually more real than the one in which we can put our hands on. And that God is the progenitor of that world, that by his right. essence, in his being, he is all things. So in some ways it's like we overcomplicate life, right? Because like we want to bring together like constituent parts and talk about the summation of things, the additivity principle. And yet God is simple in that he is what he is. Like this sounds going to sound like strangely blasphemous, but like, it's like the Popeye principle. Like right. I am what I am. Like it's, that's why it's brilliant that when God encapsulates himself in human language, that's the way he gives his name. That's the way he describes who he is. Right. And so like, what does it mean then for us? Like I'll pose this question for our conversation. Like what does it mean then to live in a space, in a reality, in a time to understand like that God is real and this is who God says he is. Yeah. And that's exactly it is that we have to understand that, that God's nature is what it is, right? This, this is the divine simplicity (laughs) principle. It sounds wild, right? right? It's, it's it's deceptively simple to say, well, God just is what God is. But we have to sort of get into that space where we're able to recognize, just like in a sense, I am what I am. Now, part of what I am is potential. So like I, I could be something else. Sure. E- either either I could be something entirely el- else, right? I could be a cat, I guess. Like you could rearrange the physical matter of my body and it make it into a cat, I guess, theoretically. That That's one thing. Like I am what I am, which includes potential. God is what he is and everything that he is 
is God. So, right so we, we, don't, we don't need to belabor that point, but we have to get into this conceptual headspace. Jesse and I are just one example of many different examples of humanity. Right. right? right. Jesse is a, as one example. I'm another example. My wife is in the other room. She's another example. My mother-in-law is across town. She's another example, right? There's 6.7 billion examples of humans. There's one God. And so, so once we've got this oneness, now we have to sort of pivot a little bit and get to this threeness. And this is what I'm talking about is like, now that we've landed on this oneness, we could, we could stop there, but we wouldn't be talking about a Christian theism. This is one of the primary criticisms of someone like William Lane Craig. When he does apologetics, he's really just arguing for this one God. He's arguing for this one divine nature that is powerful and intelligent and personal. He never, in most debates, he never goes to the Trinity. He never goes past it. He's arguing for sort of this bare theism. So we, in order for it to be a Christian theism though, we have to get to the way that this one nature eternally exists in or as three persons. And so now when we're talking about persons, we're talking about the, the actual, I can point to this thing on my desk, right? I've got a little like sand timer on my desk. It's, it's one of those like sand timers that's full of like liquid. And so it like changes the way it falls, depending on how you tilt it. There's any number of those, but I can point to this one on my desk. It has particular properties, right? This one has blue sand. The one that someone else bought might have orange sand or red sand, but I can point to this one. When we get to the Trinity, where it gets to be difficult is that what I've done here is I've parceled up, let's take it in platonic terms. There's some ideal form of this sand timer thing that I have on my desk. And each one of these is kind of a parceled up portion of that divine, of that sand timer nature. Each chair is a parceled up portion of that chair nature. Sort of like, like think of like those, uh, like when you watch like how things are made videos and they're talking about like Hershey's kisses and there's like the little machine that squirts the kiss, like this chocolate onto the conveyor belt. It's parceling out chocolate into these little shapes. That's kind of what we talk about. When we're talking about created natures is each, each nature or each, uh, each thing parceled out into reality is sort of squirted out and forms an individual person. Now we're not right. Platonists, so we don't believe there's some eternal Hershey's kissness out there. Each one of these is an, is a distinct Hershey's kiss complete with a Hershey's kiss nature, right? When we're talking about God, the three persons are not like that. It's not as though there's this, this, uh, this like repository of divine nature and like the, the little God Hershey's kiss thing squirts a little bit of God out and that's the father and then squirts this little bit of God out and that's the son. And then this is the spirit and they're, they're distinct from each other. That's decidedly not what we're talking about. And the reason for this in part is because we're talking about a nature that cannot be parceled out by definition. And so this is where our language is going to start to fail us. Jesse and I, right? There's some people who will use the analogy of like Peter, James, and John in the boat. That's like the Trinity is like, there's three men. They all have the right. same nature and they're in a boat, but there's three men, even though there's like one human nature. Well, no, there's not one human nature. There's actually three human natures in that boat. God is not like that. God instead, the father, the father is the entirety of the, of the divine nature. Everything that it means to be God. The entire infinity of the divine nature is actual in the Father. So also everything that it is to be the divine nature is actual in the Son and is actual in the Spirit. And these three are one, 
not because of some sort of unity of will, right? Not some social trinitarianism, some sort of some sort of shared purpose or shared activity or shared operation, although they do have a shared operation. They're one because they are the one single indivisible divine nature in those three persons. So it's not modalism, right? The father doesn't turn into the son or represent himself as the son and then represents himself as the spirit. It's not partialism. It's not like the, the father is part of the divine nature. I guess we could call this like Hershey's kissism, right? It's not like the father is part of the divine nature and the son is part of the divine nature. The right. entirety of that one divine nature that we talked about earlier is the father, and also is the son. And some of our future episodes that we're going to do on Trinity, I've done more planning on this than I usually do. I've actually got like the next couple episodes planned out. We're going to talk about the theology that helps us to accept that and helps us to understand that. Theology that comes from the Bible, making use of the tools of philosophy, the tools of natural theology to help us understand what the Bible is saying about God. Right, not because natural theology is somehow a authority over the Bible, but because right. understanding the Bible presupposes that we have certain rational faculties that are given to us as part of being the image of God. Things like the law of non-contradiction, things like the law of identity, those kinds of things we have to have in place before we can even come to the Bible and have it make any sense at all. We use those tools to give us language to articulate these doctrines. So we're gonna right. we're gonna clarify some of that stuff in the coming episodes. But that that's the basic contours of the doctrine, right? We've got this one single God that is the divine nature, actually, and he the divine nature actually is actual in each person and the three persons together. That's that's what's so tricky about this is we're. We're, this is what you're talking about. Like we're, we're on thin ice because we're creatures using creaturely language, trying to trying to describe an uncreated reality, an uncreated God. We're going right. to have to make some allowances for for sort of fallibility or for frailty, human frailty, creaturely frailty in certain areas. And this is just we're going to get to a point where we kind of have to say, like, this is as, as good as we can do in articulating it. We just don't have the right tools. Right. I mean, language is by its very nature underwhelming with respect to communicating something as profound as who God is. Yeah. So one of the things that struck me as you were speaking was I like this idea of how can we come to accept lovingly and with confidence that what the scripture tells us about God is just true, even if we cannot conceive of it in our minds. That is, I think, the beauty of coming to rest under the doctrine of the Trinity. Yes. And in some ways we have great, really great parallel for this because like, I, I assume that in everybody's life, there's something that they've learned where somebody said, this thing is true. And you might have wrestled with that truth. Maybe even after studying it to great lengths, it cannot be in some way come together in your mind. And yet, you know, that it is still an expression of reality. I think our world is full of those things that are complicated yeah. or complex in that way. God is one of those things. He is simplistic in his form. And yet what we're talking about here is we just don't have like the categories, but just because we don't have the categories doesn't mean it's not true. So for everybody else that would right. say, well, like if I can't wrap my brain around it, if I can't find the proper metaphor, which I think we've, we've had this exercise there is no good metaphor of the Trinity. Like stay away right. from eggs, stay away from apples, stay away from pregnant ladies. There is nothing there <laughs> that is ultimately going to make us come to terms with the sense where like, we're not going to be on ice and slipping and falling all over the place. Like the best thing that we can do is just recognize that we are on the ice, that it is slippery 
and that there is like at best some kind of way that we can kind of conceptualize and try to understand what God has said in the scriptures, like right. using that again as like the sieve through which we're going to pass all of this stuff. So what are these first principles at the trading? I think a lot more of unpacking about that is going to come forward as you and I continue to have conversations about this. But I would say to like everybody who maybe is overwhelmed by this conversation, it's okay. It's yeah. really okay because what God is so gracious to us and even the complicated things that are of himself and so it's not required that we have some kind of like profound and super complicated and super like above average and intricate understanding of this. It's merely as like a child to trust the parent and saying, this is the way walk in it. So there's something yeah. beautiful, even as we process this is saying, Lord, I do not understand all this stuff. Like it makes my mind do a somersault. And yet I trust that you are who you say you are, that when you say I am, and there's a simplicity to that, that I can embrace that simplicity through faith to rest in the promise that you are both three in one. And these are conversations and conceptions that like are not common to me because I am one in one. Right. So how is it you can be this way? So if this seems like you're like, listen, I'm not into philosophy. I can barely stomach half the theology that we've spoken about. I just want to love God. That's okay. Yep. Like this is all part of that process. Loving God is trying to embrace these heavy things. It's also resting in these heavy things. We find that our sensibilities and our philosophies fail us. Yeah. And one of the things, you know, one of the things we talked about in, uh, I think not our last episode, but the one before that, we talked about God's holiness. Part of what it means for God to be holy is that he's radically different than us. Yeah. He's, right he's, on. He's not like us. It's, it's not, uh, he, he's a different, yeah, he's alien to us. He's a different kind of thing than we are. And, yes. and this is like this, you know, it's funny that this episode's called like the basic doctorate and I'm like getting into like philosophy of Plato and the cave and like, I'm getting into like really technical stuff. <laughs> the cave. This is, this is basic Christian theology. Like that, that's right. the hard part is that like, okay, I'm just going to go off on a little, a little rant here. Let's do right? it. Prior to like 1930, probably a little bit earlier than that. We'll say like the mid 1800s prior to like Charles Finney. And revivalism, the second great oh, awakening. Finney. I know, Finney. We need to have like a Finney, some sort of Finney t-shirt. But he messed a lot of stuff up. He and did. Don't but even realize pr prior that. to the second great awakening, right? We hear these sort of like e accounts of like the farmer who's plowing his field, and in one one hand he's got his plow, and the other hand he's got his Greek New Testament. And he's reading his Greek, he's reading Greek New Testament, right? A farmer. Not not I'm not trying to bash on farmers. Farmers are amazing, right? <laughs> But like what, what farmers are not usually known for is knowing archaic dead languages that don't actually serve a practical purpose. Right. Sure. Right. So that that's not what we would think of as a farmer. We would think of a farmer who's got real good practical knowledge. They understand certain things about biology. Like they're 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 smart guys. They have to understand what they're doing. Of course. But we don't think of them having this erudite arcane knowledge that we might associate with something like the doctrine of the Trinity. Yet in Jonathan Edwards' day, prior to the Second Great Awakening, it was a regular occurrence for the farmer to be able to speak conversantly about theology like this with someone like Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, we read him now and we're like, oh my goodness, I can't understand a word this dude's saying. It's too complicated. He wasn't right. writing it for other academics. This of wasn't course. stuff he was publishing in right. the academy. This was stuff he was writing for other pastors and for people in his congregation. So, so prior to the sort of the second great awakening where it all became about emotions and it became about driving a particular response. 
it was normal for Christians to be able to speak about this kind of doctrine, to be able to right. speak in these ways. So what we think of now as basic theology is not at all what real, actual basic theology is. This might sound hopelessly, I don't know what it sounds like, but it might not sound favorable. Nothing that we have said today is something that you would not get or should not get. Nothing that should be overlooked in a first-year undergraduate Bible class, first-year undergraduate theology class. The discussion we had today is literally intro to Christian, intro to Christianity discussion. So I know sure. that it's technical. I know that it's hard, but it's important for us because if you get this wrong, right? If you get this wrong, you end up saying all sorts of squirrely stuff later on. So this for really sure. is the basic doctrine and we need to get past this basic Christianity is just no creed, but the Bible. I mean, I just love Jesus. That's my basic Christianity. That's fine. Okay. Do you love the Jesus who is one with the father eternally and is glorified with the father and the spirit together for all eternity? Or do you love the Jesus who like, you know, like pulls his hair behind his ears and is nice all the time. Right. Which Jesus, Jesus. right, right. Exactly. Which Jesus do you like? Which Jesus do you love? Is it, is it the Jesus of the Nicene creed? Is it the Jesus right. of eternal functional subordination who gets right. his identity from the fact that he is the savior instead of being the savior because of who he is? Which Jesus? And that's why this has to be a somewhat technical discussion. And and take heart because the more you do this, the more you think about this, the more you wrestle through this, I'm telling you, I promise you, you will reap dividends in your personal piety and your devotion to Christ and your love for the Father, the Son, and the Spirit if you take the time and do the hard work of wrestling through these doctrines. So like I said, I know that it seems a little disingenuous to call this the basic doctrine episode, but it really is. This is the start of it, folks. Like this is not, this isn't advanced Christianity. This is this is Christianity 101 is understanding that to use the words of the of the Athanasian Creed, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. That's that's right. the God we worship. Now, what that means is not something we can actually articulate. We can do our best. We can spend an hour trying to explain it on a podcast. We can spend a lifetime trying to wrestle with it and clarify and say it better and sing it better and pray it better. But at the end of the day, Christianity 101 is we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. As soon as my mind goes to the one, I go back to the other. And as John Calvin said, and this is where I'll close it, the Trinity is a mystery to be worshiped and adored, not to be understood and explained. Right. That's a paraphrase. I don't know exactly what the quote is, but it's pretty close. Yes, we should be able to articulate it. Yes, we should be able to explain it. Yes, we should be able to defend it biblically and philosophically. But at the end of the day, the reason we do all those things is not some erudite exercise. It's because this is the God we worship. And this is what he's demanded of us. And it's really important that we do our best to honor him and glorify him as he is, even though we can only do that in sort of this faulty, frail, creaturely language. Right on. But it doesn't remove the fact that we ought to, right? I think like your challenge that you're giving to us is to rest in that spiritually, to come into a place, into a space where we trust that God is who he says he is, even if we find that to be otherworldly. Because in fact, if we're talking about like this omnipotent, present God, 
then he ought to be everything we're saying. He ought to be in some ways like incommunicable in the sense that like we cannot properly explain everything that he is in right. his essence. And yeah. to maybe like trigger a little bit more to take what you said, just like one step further, I might argue that everything you just said is, which we'd say again, is like, listen, this is like Christianity 101. It's not just represented in these creeds here, but like, let's talk about the confessions and catechisms where right. children themselves yeah. were being taught these complicated things, not because they need to wrap their brains around them in its entirety, but because this is who God says he is. Yep. So to be part of this kingdom, to be part and parcel of the children of God is to trust and to know God as he says he is, but to be able to express that knowledge, even when we find that either the words fail us or even we can't necessarily diagram it on a piece of paper. It doesn't, it does not, in other words, invalidate the truth right. that this is who God is and he is a great and glorious God. So yeah. I just rejoice in that fact that there's a lot that I want to know and perhaps one day and we are in heaven with him when we're in the new heaven and the new earth, when all things are made new, that we're going to have increased knowledge and we're going to be like, okay, all right. Like every day it's going to be like, oh yeah. Like, okay. So that's what that means. Like increased knowledge, increased worship. So in some ways this should propel us to more doxology, even as we find that our intellect can't keep up with it. It doesn't mean that our doxology should be inhibited or hindered because of it. Yeah. I am going to going to make a deep reference here and now for Do something it. completely different. <laughs> so there there's Jesse and I could literally talk about the Trinity and the, the the intricacies of trinitarian theology for the rest of our lives. So we have to just sure. like full stop, we're going to talk cut about something off. else. Somebody cut us off. And that something else, Jesse, is free books. Free books free always books. are a great transition. Yes. So we uh we're now in a position where we're able to give away a new free resource every month. Sometimes those are resources that are provided to us by publishers. Sometimes it's resources that we purchase to give away this month uh, coming up. So it's going to be, it's, it's just October 31st today, almost at December 31st. It's October 31st today. This is going to publish sometime first week of November. So for the month of November, we are giving away a copy of a book called Persistent Prayer written by Guy Richards. And this is part of uh, PNR has got this new little series called the Blessings of the Faith series. And PNR has been uh, gracious enough to provide us with a copy of this book to give away. So make sure you go check out their website. They've got lots of good resources. I know it's easy to buy books on Amazon, but it really does make a difference to publishers if you buy it directly from them. So if you if you can stomach uh, sometimes a few extra dollars and maybe a little bit of a slower shipping time, which is not a good advertisement for PNR. Sorry about that. But if you can do that, it actually does make a big difference to not only the publisher, but also a lot of times to the author who's writing the book, if you purchase it directly from the publisher. So please do check out uh, prbooks.com. Sorry, it's prpbooks.com. Right uh, and check out their whole catalog. I mean, they, they have great things that they're giving away. Um, you know, like around Reformation Day, they, they, they sold... Uh, uh, Institutes of the Atlantic Theology by Francis Turretin at like a deep discount because they're trying to get good resources into the hands of people. So please go check out their website. Check out the Blessings of the Faith series. All three of them are great as far as I've heard. So I good. I haven't read all of them. Jesse read uh, the Pato Baptist one and we know how that ended. Uh, <laughs> so please... <laughs> 
<laughs> people are gonna think that's like an advertisement for like changing. It wasn't just that, loved ones. But yes. you want to baptize some babies. I also <laughs> want to baptize some babies. Like, but you're right. It is part of a series. So there's covenantal baptism, expository preaching, and this is the last one: persistent prayer. How do people though get a handle or get a, their hands on an opportunity to win that book? Yes, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest. You will always find whatever our current active contest is. There's usually a brief period of like a week where there's not an active contest. But you can always go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest. Or you can go for this episode, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash 263. Uh, not only can you check out the pictures of this sweet nursery that my amazing mother-in-law oh, yeah. put together for us, but you can also enter to win a copy of this book. So we'll give this book away. We'll notify winners of this uh of this contest sometime around the end of November, maybe early December uh, that they've won. And then I will get those shipped out as soon as possible. But yeah, check it out. This book, this book looks good. I haven't read it, but it looks good. It's about, you know, just kind of going to the Lord in prayer, just getting after it in prayer and how important it is to persist in prayer. So check it out. Guy Richards is a great author. He's uh, part of Reformed Theological Seminary, um, top-notch scholar. So he's doing some good work and this is a good book. It also makes a good, you know, not to, not to start too early. We're coming into midwinter, no reason shopping season. So check out prpbooks.com. Maybe buy a little something for your pastor. Maybe buy a little something for your mother-in-law or your brother-in-law or your wife or your husband, anyone who would like to get a book. I love it. I haven't read this yet. I'm committed though to reading it. I'm going to pick it up this week, take a look at it. I see that there's like a little blurb from JC Ryle who says that he totally supports this book because he loves prayer. I feel like that's suspicious. <laughs> I I appreciate that before we ended this, you actually called that out. So nobody was like, wait a second, JC Ryle approved this book. This is JC Ryle's people. doing the like ghost of Christmas dead. past thing for, yeah. for Guy Richards. We do not endorse yeah, he's, he's divination. But here's what you need to know about this book. One, any book written by a dude named Guy, like Guy's like kind of an <laughs> epic name. You know that's what I mean? True. Like, it's true. It, there's it a good book. Uh, there's is. a good book by Guy, Guy Waters about uh, anti-federal vision. So yes, yeah. see exactly. Guy Prentice Waters. I don't throw that. Exactly. In yeah. See, that's like an epic name. So neither yes. I, neither you or I have that kind of epic. Well, though, yeah, I mean, your name is Antonio, which is like pretty sweet name. Yeah, I guess. I don't. Really yeah. Go I mean, I li- actually, I like the name Jesse. It's like a pretty Jesse's yeah, a good name. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm down with that. You know what? Neither you and I ha- do have though. The ability to end the podcast without just straight up saying, we're going to end the podcast now. So, Jesse, we're going to end the podcast now. And until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. (laughs) 